Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started here today? Lord, we are so thankful, as Pastor Mark already said this morning, so thankful for the freedom and the security and the safety and the peace that we experience here that allows us to meet and to worship you to bask in your presence and to proclaim your word and to hear your word and to worship together. And Lord, we pray that you would meet us here and that you would speak to us and encourage us and guide us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this was the uh, scene in uh, November 1989. Maybe some of you remember this. I was in high school at the time. It's the, the Berlin Wall literally being torn down by crowds of protesters. Uh, it's a super exciting time. We're glued to the television set, watching the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, the Cold War coming to an end. Shortly after this, right, the, the USSR, this dominant force in the Cold War, dissolved, and out of that came all these new countries we had sort of never really learned about before, appearing in uh, Eastern Europe from behind the Iron Curtain. Countries among them, like Ukraine. So it was kind of bizarre and surreal this week to then find myself watching the news again and watching, it's like, like rewind. Like we got in a time warp or something, and now Russia is reinvading Ukraine, tanks, planes, bombs, the, everything that you've seen on the news already. It's uh, this weird disconnect in my head. Maybe some of you have been experiencing that, especially in light of the last two years of, of COVID and pandemics and quarantines and everything else we've been going through. Seems like chaos is the new normal. Like one of those plague, uh, a fairground rides where you've got a little teacup and it's spinning around and around and then the whole thing's spinning around and around and it's going up and down all at the same time. It's hard to get our feet on stable ground. And the question is, how should Christians respond in times like this? Peter's audience maybe faced a different set of problems than we do today, but as we're going to see, his advice is nevertheless exactly the same. It applies to us today as much as it did for his audience at the time. And that is God is in control. However crazy or chaotic things may seem to be, there is one true king who rules over all. As we just heard in Psalm 33, right? One true king who brings the council of the nations to nothing, but also a wise and gentle king who is a help, a shield to those who trust in his holy name. So today we're going to present three foundations that we can stand on uh, in times of chaos. And the first of these is to trust in God's word. Now, my youngest daughter just started playing on a basketball team, fifth grade basketball, and uh, they have a lot of fun together, but there's a ton to learn. If you've ever played basketball or tried to teach little kids basketball, that's a lot. I mean, you're constantly switching from offense to defense, and 
Uh, you, you've got to learn all these complicated rules, like uh, you can't just pick up the ball and run it down the court, like we saw a first grader do a few years ago. You've got to practice the same skills over and over again. You're practicing layups and free throws and, and dribbling. And, and you never really graduate past that, right? Like I kind of tell a silo, hey, once you get through this year, then, you know, you can just go play the game. It's like, no, the, the longer you play, you keep having to practice these same skills. You get to college, you're going to be practicing layups and free throws over and over and over again. LeBron and, and Steph, they're still practicing free throws and layups and, and dribbling skills over and over and over again. And you can see where this is leading, right? Because the same principle applies for us in our Christian life as well. It's the same fundamental principles over and over again. We never graduate past the basics. We never get to move beyond the gospel, to move beyond Bible reading and prayer and fellowship and communion and everything else. And this is part of what drives Paul, uh, Peter's passionate appeal in this letter. He's, he's like, don't forget the basics. Look at the text. He says, this is now the, the second letter that he's written to them, at, at least of the letters that we still have remaining for us. It's possible that he may have even written more. But he says, this is the second letter I've written to you, and I'm telling you, this is the third time he's made this same exact point. I want to stir up you to, to remember and not forget the things I've been talking to you about. So if it feels like this sermon, you've heard it before, you have. This is the third time I've stood up here and said the same thing. Right? I want to stir up your memory. I want to remind you of what you've already learned. Peter has no interest in sort of wandering off into esoteric doctrines or, or these high-minded principles like accumulating more knowledge. Studying theology and doctrine is good. That's what we, we do every morning before church. We have a Sunday school class. We're going through systematic theology. It's not too late to join us. It's important. But Peter's mission as a pastor and leader is to, to be faithful, not fancy. That's what he's trying to do here, to call his people to live in accordance with the gospel message they have already Received, And so he's going to keep reminding them of this over and over again. Remember Jesus' commission to Peter, right? He says, feed my sheep. That's what Peter is doing. Look at this, this language. He says, beloved. Beloved. This is not the way we really talk to each other today. It's sort of very Bible language. But this is his passion his love for his people, beloved. I yearn for you to know these things, to not miss them. But look, this is not just emotion, for emotion's sake. Look at verse 2. Peter says he's concerned about something in particular, that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, that's, that's basically everything that would eventually come down to us as the New Testament. At this time, it's a collection of oral sayings and remembrances and maybe a few letters from Paul. 
But I want to focus on his, his phrase here, the holy prophets. That's really just his shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament, everything that we would call the Old Testament. If you have uh, the, your Bibles in your hand, like 75% of this is the Old Testament, right? Written in Hebrew over hundreds of years, read and studied and memorized and internalized by the Jews for centuries until the time of Christ. In fact, if you don't know or read the Old Testament, it's going to be extremely hard to understand the New Testament. To starve yourself of the old is to diminish your understanding of the new. It's why we try and alternate our sermon series, right? Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. When we get done, we're going to move back into the Old Testament. It's why you should also spend sufficient time in your own devotional life digging in to the Old Testament, not just the Psalms and the Proverbs, which are more accessible, but but the history books, the prophets, the law. Digging into Leviticus even, like, what is this? Lord, speak to me. Help me to understand this. You know, one resource I I found really helpful um, in this is there's an organization called the Bible Project, and they put together all these short videos, little video overviews of every book in the Bible, and you can watch these to help you get the big picture as you try and dig in and understand what's going on. But the bottom line is you need to find new ways to engage in God's Word on a regular basis, carving out time and space, expending energy and effort to understand God's Word. Why? Because in the end, this is all we have. This is the only stable ground that we have in this world. Surely everything that's happened in the last two years has made that clear, helped us to see how fragile, uncertain, impermanent this world really is. You know, like many of you, I've been uh, following the events going on in Ukraine very closely this week, and I read a report from a pastor working in Ukraine. His name is Rick Perhai, and he's a professor at Kiev Theological Seminary. He's a pastor at his church. Just a couple of days ago, he wrote this. He said, "What keeps my wife and me here in U- well, What keeps my wife and me here in Ukraine? Like, why would I stay? Well, we're staying for the sake of the little band of believers in our church, whom we love. We're walking together with them in good times and in bad. And what keeps me coming to the seminary? It's the Ukrainian students who hunger." to study and put into practice Bible exposition and Christ-saturated biblical theology, even in these uncertain times. Even in these uncertain times. With bombs dropping on their city, with Russian troops advancing, everything else fades into the background. I was reading elsewhere online, the Ukrainian Bible Society is like, we need more Bibles! (laughs) Like, we, the demand far outstrips our available supply. And so this pastor is staying in Kiev because like Peter, he loves his people. And also because like Peter, he knows the most important thing any of them can do 
is to keep pressing deeper and deeper into the Word of God. And so my prayer is that, that we, too, in the, the comfort and the safety of our churches here in the West, that we would likewise approach the words of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior with that same kind of single-minded fervency and, and zeal and passion and commitment, recognizing this is the stable ground that we have, our hope in this world. So our first foundation in times of crisis is to trust in God's word. Our second foundation in times of crisis is to trust in God's presence. Have you noticed how in moments of crisis, how many people suddenly get religion, right? Everyone is like, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with Ukraine right now. It doesn't, conservative, liberal, progressive, it's like everyone's praying for Ukraine. And of course, on one hand, awesome. Like, I don't want to judge someone's heart, and they need the prayers. But you've seen this pattern over and over again, and once this crisis fades into the background, we'll return to the normal state of affairs, the way the world has operated for millennia, namely a sharp division between those who believe that God is actively involved in this world and those who do not. Now look, I'm not talking about those who believe in God and those who do not. I'm saying those who believe that God is actively involved in this world and those who do not. The question is, does God still intervene in the world? Is he, does he care? Does he see what's happening? And Peter's word for these kinds of people is he calls them scoffers, right? Saying, Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You can just hear this, this mocking tone in their voice. Like, where's your God? I don't see anything happening. I mean, you preach and you, you pray and you, you do all this stuff, but nothing changes. The world just keeps spinning on irregardless. It's pathetic. Maybe you've met people who talk like this. Sadly, this was my exact approach for years and years before I came to Christ. Mocking, belittling, a scoffer who, too busy following my own sinful desires to notice the hand of God himself at work in the life that I took completely for granted. But Peter has stern words of warning for such people as me. Look at verses 5 through 7. Peter says, look, your underlying premise is false. The world hasn't existed unchanged forever. The, the simple fact of creation itself was a sovereign, supernatural event. God didn't have to create the world, but he chose to. Right? Was, we read in uh, Genesis 1, right? the earth formless and void, darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And what are the next three crucial words 
And God said. Repeated over and over again throughout Genesis. And, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And God said. And God said. And God said. Order. Brought about out of the chaos, out of the waters, through the powerful word of God himself. How do words create this? I don't know. I can't explain that. But the Bible is clear that this is how it happened. Now, scoffers may reply, okay, fine, God created, but since then he's done nothing at all. So Peter continues saying, no, no, no. Look, look at the flood narrative. Just as God had power to call the world into existence, so too does he have the power to undo that creation. Just as he did when he allowed the chaotic waters to flood the earth again. Punishing the ungodly while, as we read a few weeks ago, rescuing Noah and his family. And Peter fully intends and assumes that his audience would see these two facts as concrete, irrefutable evidence. Right? These are not myths or, or fables meant to teach some kind of generic, timeless truth. Right? If someone came up to you today and, and questioned God's active hand in this world, you wouldn't quote uh, a Shakespeare play or, or refer to uh, a Marvel movie as an illustration to prove your point, right? You'd look for something concrete and tangible, something real and historical. And that's what Peter is doing here. He absolutely believes the flood literally happened. Not as a metaphor for something else, but as a real event proving God himself to be active and present and engaged and involved in this world. But more than that, Peter said, look, from creation we know he exists, he uh, is present. From the flood we know he's engaged and involved. And more than that, one day in the future he will return to judge the heavens and the earth with fire, a force unlike any other, bringing final judgment and destruction on the ungodly. And the common thread in all these events is God's powerful word at work in this world. Here, now, not, not distant and removed, up in the sky somewhere, but, but actively, intimately engaged, getting his hands dirty, in the mess of this world, the God who dwells among his people, who speaks through the prophets, who took on flesh and dwelled among us, the God who hears our prayers and answers them. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now I can't prove that to you. Like any evidence that I give, a, a skeptic will find some way to explain away. But let me share just one brief story. Uh, a friend of ours is a pastor in Malaysia, and his wife has been sick, very sick, for quite some time. And so last year they went to go see a number of different doctors, including an evaluation with a neurologist to 
said, I think this may be Parkinson's disease. They're horrified at this, of course. So they went and they got a second opinion and went to another neurologist who confirmed that diagnosis and said, no, this is Parkinson's, and I'm so sorry. And since then, they've started treatment and, and therapies, and they've adjusted everything in their life, their ministry schedule and their work schedule and their home life. Fast forward now to this week, just two days ago, actually, when we got an updated prayer request from him. You see, over the last few weeks, his wife has been improving dramatically, so much so that they went to see a third neurologist who said he could no longer find any signs or indications of Parkinson's disease. Like, none. Then, just this week, before texting me, uh, they went to go see a geriatrician, I think that's the right word, a doctor who specializes in older adults. And he likewise confirmed that, said, there's no indication of Parkinson's disease. It's amazing, and he's writing to us saying, I don't know how to explain it, or what even to ask or say, but praise God with us. And in writing a sermon, I'm like, do I share this story or not? I mean, this is so new, it just happened. What if he writes back a few weeks from now, he's like, no, actually, it's gotten worse again, and these doctors were wrong, and it is Parkinson's. Or, or what if she gets sick from something else and then dies? Or what if it was just a case that the first two doctors were idiots and totally botched the diagnosis, and she never had it to begin with? What if this was all just a big coincidence? But then I realized, that's not my job. Right? Like God doesn't need me to serve as some kind of legal counsel, making a case for him. He calls me to trust in his presence. To trust that the same God who can literally create an entire world and everything in it, simply by speaking words, that same God may possibly have the same power to heal someone of Parkinson's disease. To let us know that he sees and he hears and he cares and he is present and active and alive and at work in this world, whether anyone recognizes that or not. And that's Peter's point here. Scoffers, they can mock all they want. But Peter calls us to trust in God's powerful, life-sustaining presence, nonetheless. So in times of chaos, Peter calls us, first of all, to put our hope, our trust in God's Word. That's our first foundation we can stand on. And then secondly, in rebuking the scoffers, he encourages us to put our trust in God's presence with us at all times. But that still leaves this huge question. How long? I may believe that God is active and real and present and in this world, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything right now. Like David in Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long 
shall my enemy be exalted over me? These are the kinds of questions we've all experienced in the dark of night when things seem to be just getting, going from bad to worse. This is the question Peter now addresses in verses 8 through 10, which brings me to our third foundation, with a trust in God's timing. Look at verse 8. It says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, this isn't meant to be some kind of mathematical formula, right? As if you can take this formula one day, thousand years, plug it in to the Bible and get all this information about some timeline that God has in mind. Peter says one day is as like a thousand years. Right now, a thousand years is, is like a day in God's mind. Right? God's timeline and our timeline, they're completely different. We're bound by sin and death and mortality and hours and minutes and seconds. Right? We're created creatures. We have a beginning and an end. But God stands outside all of that. He alone is, is eternal. He's infinite without beginning or end. And so we may think in terms of God moving fast or slow, but those are terms that only have meanings bound by time, like we are. And although this waiting may seem interminable at times, Peter gives at least one clear reason for why God may be staying his hand. Look at verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. God's purposes are ultimately beyond our knowledge, but at least part of the reason for his delay is driven by his character, who God is, his patience, his long-suffering nature, right? Exodus 34, a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, his patience desiring for our salvation. Which means any delay in, in the, the end coming, it's not God's problem or fault. It's, in some sense, it's ours. It's our sin. Our lack of repentance. It's our brokenness and mess that's leading to this delay. And as Peter says here, this is actually a gracious opportunity for more people to come to faith. But that begs the question, if you look at this verse, how many, Peter does, how many people does Peter have in mind? Because it sort of sounds like God is talking about universal salvation here. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, it's a big issue. More than we can completely cover in one sermon, but... Just looking at this context alone, we know this can't be talking about universalism. This idea that everyone will one day be saved. Because in verses 6 and 7, just in this chapter, Peter talks about the imminent judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Both in the past with the flood, 
and in the future when Christ returns. So clearly, just in this chapter alone, we know not everyone will be saved. Moreover, and think back to chapter 2, this extended denunciation of the false teachers and a reminder over and over again of the calamity that they will face in the judgment to come. And in fact, judgment is a good thing. It's not popular to talk about it, but justice requires the wicked to be punished. Evil can't simply be ignored or swept under the carpet. It must be exposed, brought out into the light, dealt with. Why is everyone, almost everyone, up in arms about Ukraine right now? Because we instinctively know that this is wrong. Even non-Christians recognize this is, this is unjust. This is, you, can, you can't do this. It's wrong. And something should be done about it. And Peter says here, makes it very clear that one day God will. But if some people will indeed be punished, then how can we also speak of God not wanting anyone to perish? Well, theologians refer to this as the two wills of God. Okay, so Professor uh, I.H. Marshall puts it this way. He says, that when we look at the Bible, it becomes clear there's sometimes a difference between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen. So, on the one hand, God can truly not wish to see anyone perish while at the same time also allowing some people to indeed perish. So how is this possible? What John Piper has written a really great little book on this topic called Does God Truly Desire All to be Saved? It's a free book. You can just go to their website, download the PDF for free. It'll seriously take you only like a day to read it. It's very accessible. But Piper, in this book, gives the death of Christ as the prime example of this seeming contradiction in the wills of God. Because clearly, Christ's death on the cross was God's will and plan. And yet, at the same time, we can also clearly affirm that God did not wish that any of this should have happened, that that Adam and Eve would have rebelled against him, that that sin would have entered the world for his son to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified. These are evil actions for which men were held accountable. God's moral perfection and holiness means that he hates sin. His will is that none should sin. And yet, at the same time, for our salvation to be possible, God also willed that Christ die on our behalf. Now, how does this all work? There will probably never be enough clarity to satisfy all our questions. God, in his infinitude, alone in this universe is able to hold these two concepts together. Wishing one thing to happen while also willing another. We may not be able to fully grasp this, but as John Piper says, we're talking about a God who simultaneously hears and understands and responds to the prayers 
of millions and millions of Christians simultaneously, all at the same time. So perhaps the clearest path forward is to simply affirm what the Bible does, that God does truly and deeply desire for none to perish. And surely the cross is itself the clearest proof of that deep desire. And yet, at the same time, we have to affirm that some will indeed perish. As the very next verse makes clear. Now, Pastor Michael is going to talk more about this next week because this thought extends into verses 11, 12, and 13. But for now, Peter's point is clear. God's patience is abundant, but it's not endless. God may be infinite, but our timeline will come to an end one day. And in that moment, everything that we see and know and experience will be consumed with fire. All evil works will be exposed. All wrongs will be made right. Justice will prevail, and there will be true, lasting peace throughout God's new creation. We're pulling all these strands together. Nobody can say for certain what's going to happen in Ukraine over the next week. Or really anywhere for that matter. But my hope is not in a certain set of outcomes. right? My hope is in a person. Jesus Christ. And what we do know for certain is that in the end, victory is the Lord's. Nothing and no one can stand in God's way. He will come out on top. I want to close by reading uh, a part of a a, a brief blog post uh, written by a man named Ben Morrison. He's a church planter in Ukraine right now. I want to read you what he wrote. He said, The deprived mind of man would like to believe and have others believe that he can control fates, lives, nations, and so on. But there is only one who controls the flow of history. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. But that's not always easy to remember when bombs are exploding. The noise of the lie can get loud, so the truth needs to go deeper. We called an impromptu evening for worship and prayer for Ukraine. It was a sweet time, stirring one another up and singing the truth deep into our hearts. That, as one song we sang, puts it, Faithful you are, faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. All your promises are yes and amen. And he finishes by saying this, We serve a king who stared death in the face and defeated it, exploding it from the inside. There is only one true king, and the little tyrants of this world will ultimately only play into his great victory. His promises are sure, and his victory inevitable. Would you pray with me? Lord, we 
join with this pastor and so many others living and working and worshiping in Ukraine right now, affirming that, Lord, your promises are sure, your victory, O oh Lord, is inevitable. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to trust in your word, to trust in your presence, and especially, Lord, give us grace and, and mercy and strength to trust in your timing as we wait for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.